Slate's Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CULTURE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And by the Netflix original documentary series, Chef's Table. Go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. Directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. All episodes now streaming on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Icy Floating Hearts Edition. It's Wednesday, May 27th, 2015. On today's show, Wayward Pines is a new TV show from the filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan. It stars Matt Dillon as a Secret Service agent stranded in an otherworldly Idaho town. And then Periscope is the latest revolution in uploading ourselves to the digital commons. We tried it and we discuss it. Finally, has nerd culture taken over the whole culture? And has this infantilized us? We discuss a much brooded about set of comments from the actor and writer Simon Pegg with our own guest, Jamel Bowie. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Dana, I'm going to start with you because it's M. Night Shyamalan who made his uh, name as the quote-unquote new Spielberg, as I believe Time or Newsweek called him as a filmmaker. Now he's in TV with Wayward Pines, which tells the story of a Secret Service agent stranded in a bizarre, very Twin Peaks-like Idaho town. Why don't we listen to a clip and then we'll dig in. Look, I'm a government agent. Yeah, Mary Poppins is your grandmother. You a guy with no ID, no badge, who just stole that car. I want to move that gun. Yeah, gladly. You just assaulted a federal agent. No, I just restrained a suspect who was resisting arrest. Get off all of your feet. You see, I called the Seattle Secret Service office. They've never heard of you. Who did you talk to over there? Never mind who we talked to. As far as I'm concerned, you're still my number one suspect. Look. I didn't kill Evans. I was sent here to find him. I can help you. I've got 15 years of law enforcement under my belt. I don't care what you think you got. If I want your help, I will ask for it. Otherwise, you stay in that hotel room. Hey, Alex. Larry. Don't try to leave, Mr. Burke. That's rule number one. So that scene depicts a confrontation between Matt Dillon, our hero, and Terrence Howard, who plays the ice cream cone licking malevolent sheriff of this town where none of the rules apply and everything in your past must be forgotten. And then a kid rolling by on a bike says, rule number one, never leave this town. There's a lot of passersby who explain the rules in this show. Yeah, I have to say, guys, I mean, if I had not known this was connected at all with M. Night Shyamalan, who's the executive producer, but it's also based on a series of novels. He's not the only creative force behind it. But if I had not known he had something to do with it, I don't know that I would have recognized his imprint in the show, but I would have recognized so many other imprints from other TV shows, most notably Twin Peaks, right down to the signage 
for the faux bucolic town of, of Wayward Pines, which looks exactly like the, the Twin Peaks sign that I think you see in the credit sequence, right? As you do in the credit sequence here. Um, and you also sense lots of Lost in there or other sort of wandering Damon Lindelof creations. You sense a lot of, what are some other titles that are floating around? Well, what was, the, what was the bisected cow show? Under the Dome. <laughs> Under the Dome, the miniseries we la- watched last summer. I think it was maybe two yes, summers ago. Yes, this is the bisected cow all over again. Maybe the other half of the cow is in Wayward Pines. It's in this town, but it's... Throw, throw it... Throw it in the Vitamix and drink it down. Here's here comes some more series TV. I, I mean, but anyway, Dana. One of the things I wanted to launch with was I don't suspect any one of us deeply connected with the material, and I don't think we're going to be repeat customers. So I wanted to get more quickly to the other question, which is what happened to M Night Shyamalan? Am I wrong? Well, wait, wait a second. Are we spending I... that little time on the no, show? No, I think we need to spend a little <laughs> more time. Okay, on. Fine. All right, Julia. Then tell me what's interesting to say about this TV show. This show is such a deliberate mashup of so many other television creepout shows that it feels purposeful, but I'm not sure what the purpose is exactly. I mean, it's not just that it's a remix of Under the Dome plus Lost plus Twin Peaks plus probably a few other things we're not exactly remembering right at the moment, but it's self-conscious about it. I mean, the show opens on the shot of a man lying in the woods waking from unconsciousness with a his single eyelid shut and then opening. That is the opening shot of Lost and a shot that the show returns to return to a couple times. And to signal at the beginning that the ambition of your show is to pay homage to Lost, <laughs> a show widely regarded as a kind of intriguing puzzle box that fell apart and had no answer to its fundamental mystery. And for M. Night Shyamalan to do that, who's a director who's also frequently maligned for creating puzzle boxes that don't turn out to be as interesting in their explanation and finale as they are right. in its beginnings. I mean, there's something so bald and purposeful about these explicit references and homages to failed puzzle box shows that it, f- it felt kind of in your face. Yeah, maybe there's a throwing down of the gauntlet, like, here, you think I'm unoriginal and overly twist-based and try this series? But I will say that one thing for this this show, which I think is getting to be more and more true of TV across the board, is that the cast is excellent. I can't believe all these sort of, um, a lot of pretty A-listy kind of movie actors are in this show. I mean, Terrence Howard is doing two shows at once now. He's obviously very busy at Fox. And Matt Dillon, who hasn't done television before. And you also see Melissa Leo, right, Oscar winner, pop up at one point. You see Toby Jones. Um, Juliette e- Lewis. Juliette Lewis. Essentially every actor is somebody who sort Carla of seems Gugino. to be... Carla Gugino. seems to be imported from, from a better cultural product. Right. Well, and this is the miniseries model, right? And television can produce a miniseries. They sign up for 10 episodes. You no longer have to sign a contract that commits the next seven years of your life to whether to, to a Damon Lindelof, to someone who may or may not be able to carry out a larger vision. So this is a freestanding summer thing yeah. that is definitely not going beyond 10 episodes? Well, Under the Dome was such a hit that they ended up doing a second season, but they created a second season that was more optional and less of an obligation. And it's those nearly decade-long obligations that actors have to sign that prevent the Matt Dillons and Melissa Leos and Oscar contenders of the world from typically signing up for a TV show. So, you know, you can get a lot of A-list talent, and then the question is, what are you doing with it? Yeah, I mean, this show is not the kind of thing that's going to appeal to me, even if it's really well done. I think we've talked about this before. I'm not in love with deep mythologies. I didn't like the X-Files. I don't love shows where every single little thread has to be held onto and remembered and tugged later 10 episodes on. I I would prefer a sort of self-contained adventure per episode. But if you were one of those people who loved a slowly building episode, would there be anything, anything to appeal to you here? Well, Dana, I may be pre-disqualified from answering this question because I was 
not enchanted by Twin Peaks as many of my close friends really were, but I at least remember it being intrigued by it. And I think what must draw people into a show like this is the lead character's disorientation is seductively mysterious, and you want to see them piece together, make sense of this out-of-joint world that they've been thrown into. And here, individual elements seem very inert to me, and I know part of me wants to go through the work, really, of following along as the nonsensical details are made to cohere into a, you know, explanatory mosaic. I also think, I mean, Matt Zoller-Seitz had an interesting piece about the show in which he argued that basically it's a very, very dry comedy and that Matt Dillon is an underappreciated comic actor. I think that seems like a slightly contorted interpretation, but it is more fun to watch it that way. I mean, Matt Dillon does have this kind of a whoa face as he stolidly responds to the town and all of its weirdnesses. And he just like keeps trying to be a Secret Service agent. I also like the amusingness of the fact that he's a Secret Service agent and that they, quote, mysteriously do other things, which seems like a strangely pertinent detail in the show, given all of the news about the bungling at the Secret Service the last few months. Maybe they're not just drunkenly doing joyrides on the White House lawn. Maybe they're secretly battling, uh, you know, woeful towns. Well, it's possible that there's also going to be some sort of government conspiracy paranoid thread running through this because there's several different Shyamalan-esque or, you know, any really any mystery series-esque threads going on. There's the paranoid conspiracy, who's keeping him inside the town. Then there's a lot of supernatural questions, like why does it do does more time sometimes seem to have elapsed between certain scenes than others. There's some sort of strange temporal bending going on. And uh, and then there's also the question of, is he is this all in his head because he has a head injury at the beginning of the show? And at least according to this very nurse ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest-like nurse played by Melissa Leo, he's having all these hallucinations because he has, you know, a sub dural brain injury or something. Blah, blah, medical, ex machina, etc. Yeah. My primary response to watching this show was just to feel like what an odd moment we are at in television viewing, that we have such a surfeit of interesting TV to look at that a show with this list of talent attached to it could feel like a totally ignorable nothing burger. All right. Well, um, we're in agreement. This is not a grabby bit of programming. It is on Fox. Some people quite like it, we should say, including some people whose opinion we respect at Slate. We just didn't. But it's called Wayward Pines. It stars Matt Dillon. It's um, partially from the creative mind of M. Night Shyamalan. Wait, what about about M. Night Shyamalan, Steve? You've been waiting to tell us what you think. He's so hurt that he bundled up his Shyamalan and went went pack it. (laughs) Yeah, I want to have a what happened to Shyamalan What do you think happened to M. Night Shyamalan? Uh, uh, Okay. What has happened to M. Night Shyamalan? And let me frame it slightly differently. Was was there a collective delusion about his talents? Or was he good and then kind of became repetitive (laughs) or sour? I mean, what happened? I don't don't understand the phenomenon of this filmmaker who owned Hollywood and then is now being apparently slowly disowned by it. Yeah, whatever happened to him, it happened a long time ago. I like the idea that there was a collective delusion that he was good because it's a very Shyamalan-esque theory. It's like we all had a head injury <laughs> before we saw The Sixth Sense, <laughs> and then we wandered out all dazed. I mean, I, The Sixth Sense is a, an extremely successful spring-loaded trap, right? It works one time, and uh, it, it worked on me one time anyway. And I still have images from it that will pop up, and it's a, it's a great, scary thriller with an unexpected twist at the end that's kind of beautifully put together. I can see why it was exciting for that to be somebody's debut movie. But what surprises me about Shyamalan is how long he's been able to continue getting financing for making movies, because I don't think a single one of his movies has been well received since then. Some have been sort of more laughed at than others, but it seems like he's been 
somewhat of a critical laughingstock and not a big popular success for his entire career except for The Sixth Sense, right? Mm. I also liked the one where it was the trees, the mean trees with Mark Wahlberg. The trees were just attacking the us. Happening. The happening. The happening. That I will tell you, see, the, M. Night Shyamalan, okay, actually, I'm glad you mentioned The Happening, which is was one of his biggest laughingstock movies. And I know. Everyone thought it was so sad that it was the trees. Maybe it's the wayward pines. It's the trees again. <laughs> <laughs> the bad, the sort of invisible, whooshing, plant-related bad guy in The Happening it was sort of so terrible that it was wonderful. It flipped around into camp. I just, I loved that movie. But the first, the cold open, you almost might call it, I don't remember if it was before the credits or not, but that very beginning sequence of The Happening is terrifying, where suddenly, for no reason, people start sort of turning into weird zombies and walking backwards and then killing themselves, and there's this kind of compulsion to commit suicide. That, to me, is a great, frightening premise for a supernatural thriller, and I was excited at the beginning of that movie because of the the weirdness of those those images. And, and then it did seem like you went down a very wayward pines trail about whooshing plant villains. It was trying pollen, to I think. Away. It was literally like an allergy movie. <laughs> but it was it was an invisible whooshing that somehow Mark Wahlberg had to run away from. <laughs> oh my god, a two hour Claritin ad starring Mark Wahlberg. You've you've sold me. <laughs> What, I mean, so maybe this TV show is an allegory for an auteur director trapped inside a world of ridiculous premises out of which he must burst. <laughs> that, that's the most M. Night Shyamalani concept of all, that the making of Wayward Pines is M. Night Shyamalan's own Shyamalan movie. <laughs> it is. He's trapped in a... Anyway, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Probably don't go see Wayward Pines, but maybe go see The Happening and be, be afraid of the pollen. There we go. Okay. Well, the TV show is called Wayward Pines. Uh, it sounds like we didn't love it, but um, some of you perhaps did because many people at Slate, um, I should say, whose judgment we trust seem to like it. So if you find it gripping, come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is uh, the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? We are sponsored this week, Steve, by Squarespace. And rather than tell you about Squarespace myself, I'm going to turn the mic over or at least toward our producer, Ann Hepperman, who's been using Squarespace. Hey, Ann. Hey. How you doing? Great. Tell us what you're using Squarespace for. Well, I'm starting an international audio fiction award, and so we're building out our website using Squarespace. And I, uh, though I'm incredibly good at radio, I'm really sucky when it comes to anything web-related. I mean, I actually really love Squarespace. I like it a lot. It's great for people like me, idiots. And, I had and, to, not, and non-idiots. I had to tell you. <laughs> Way to appeal to our listeners. Right? It's great for idiots and non-idiots. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. All right. So what do you like about Squarespace? You don't have a lot of design skills. What has it helped you do? Well, it's helped me, like, I can do an email address that's, you know, associated with the website. Their help team is really helpful. Been using it a lot. Um, they have really fantastic themes that you can choose from. And with somebody like me who's working with a web developer who knows, you know, actually what they're doing, they're able to play with it, apparently. I don't you know, I don't know because I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I have a web designer and a web developer who are also able to make modifications to the site. I'm, to I'm totally sold. Nice. They have my soul. Awesome. All right. Well, so Squarespace, in addition to helping you make good websites, is in possession of our producer, Ann Hepperman's soul. It starts at $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So if you have that website in the back of your head that you've been meaning to start, if you, too, wanted to start an international audio fiction competition, uh, see if you can race Ann Hepperman to the finish. 
Or perhaps you have some other pet project that needs a website. Try Squarespace. You can start a free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CULTURE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia, thanks. Uh, Moving on. Meerkat and Periscope are what are known as live self-broadcasting apps. They instantly live stream, as it's been called. Some people have said they will possibly revolutionize our relationship to the web the way YouTube and Facebook have done. Live streaming instantly to the web has not traditionally worked, as Slate's own Will Aremis uh, astutely point out, mostly because cameras were stationary, and now they are universal and mobile. People believe this is going to be huge. Twitter, accordingly, has purchased Periscope. It does seem to be acquiring users by the millions. Julia, take it from here. Well, before we get too far in our discussion of Periscope, let us try to Periscope this broadcast. I'm inspired by a Periscope I watched this morning of Liz Kotalik, Kotalik, I think Kotalik, uh, who's an anchor at Good Morning Tucson, Periscoping her broadcast, which was mesmerizing. Boring. (laughs) Which is kind of how you might describe all of Periscope, maybe. But basically, it created this split personality where you would see her in her prim black dress and chunky necklace saying, tornadoes raced through Texas last night. I mean, I can't even do my news anchor voice. And then they would go to commercial and she would like scrunchy face her face into the Periscope and be like, hi, guys. How are you? I like mayonnaise and my potato salad. What about you? It It was a full embrace of different types of media persona that one can have. So... In the spirit of Liz Kodalek of Good Morning Tucson, let us now attempt to periscope this broadcast. So one of the things that you do is give titles to your broadcast, and that's how people help decide what to watch. So I'm calling our broadcast Slate Culture Gab Fest Periscope Segment, because I found that the most noun-based titles were the ones that I was most excited to click on. Something I didn't understand before messing around with this app is that these things basically only exist in a live stream. I think they archive them for 24 hours in on Periscope, whereas Meerkat just immediately makes them disappear, Snapchat style. But essentially, you have this so that you can see what's happening right then. And uh, no matter how fascinating someone's Periscope was, you don't have much of a chance of catching up with it later. Six people are watching us now. All right, so one thing I've learned from Periscope is if you demand that people tap on the screen and give you hearts, they sometimes do that. Will you 10 people watching us, 12 people watching us, give us any hearts? Ah, they gave us one. There you go. That seems to me to be the entirety of the Periscope experience. It's kind of reducing social media down to its most pathetic essence. It's like a dog asking to be petted by nuzzling you over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) It is this bare human need for liking. Oh, somebody gave us hearts. You get these little pop. This is impossible. It's impossible to conduct conversation (laughs) through Periscope. I now have great respect for the pro Periscopers for how they managed to maintain a line of thought and read comments at the same time. But why? (laughs) All right. So now the people that are following us need to tell us, don't just tap and give us hearts. Give us reasons that you enjoy this app and what we will get out of using it if we continue to use it. Please. (laughs) Zero response except for a floating heart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so a lot of it seems like a lot of people who don't really use Periscope but are fans of our show saw the notification and were like, hey, I'll see what these culture gap festers are up to. This is a real behind the scenes moment. I will say that the well, user interface here is really good and addictive, I think. This is what's so interesting to me is that ever since, I mean, I would even say as early as like 1998, it became clear that something like this would happen, that we'd get what used to be called the fat pipe, you know, laid, universally laid down. And we'd all be able to see all things at all times instantaneously. And the question was, 
really always more a content question than a technological one. And the content catches up, by the way. I mean, you know, you're always caught out if you say, oh, the, you know, the internet's always just going to be search. I remember going to a conference in the late 90s and some supremely self-confident would-be guru was saying after all of this, you know, additional bandwidth and these browsers that are becoming more sophisticated, you know, all we really do still is search. And it was just clear that that, you know, the content would catch up with the infrastructure. And it will again, I'm sure, with live streaming. But as of now, it, it is a bunch of people sitting around looking at each other, waiting for someone to, you know, rub a couple of nickels together and create a spark, right? I mean, aren't we sort of demonstrating that right now? Yeah, I think so. I will confess it was hard to listen to what you were saying, Steve, because we were getting so many questions on the Periscope of why people couldn't hear Steve. We have Steve patched in from Ghent on our headphones, and someone asked, why can't we hear what Steve is saying? And then someone said, what is Steve saying? And then someone said, something curmudgeonly. And then a cloud of hearts erupted. <laughs> so that's that's apparently your Periscope I, brand, Steve. I love Periscope. <laughs> they, know you, they, they know you and they heart you. But is there any way to you send got... anything but a heart? Can somebody send a frowny face? <laughs> oh, Dana. <laughs> I'm just out, I'm exploring the possibilities of Periscope. Let's have a heart contest. Let's heart for Dana now. Oh, somebody did send a frowny face through emoji in their comments. Oh, lots of blue hearts for Dana as well. All right, team. Thank you so much for logging in for this Periscope experiment. Periscperiment. Uh, we are going to leave Periscope on while we finish our discussion, but we are going to ignore your comments for a minute in effort to try to have a conversation that will be intelligible to people who weren't <laughs> here at this very moment. I did want to cite something that I saw pop up just before you moved the phone away, which was someone saying that they use it to record live events and then what it's good for is broadcasting a live event, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you were at a concert or a talk, something that your friend really wanted to go to and couldn't go to, and you periscoped it, it would be kind of a cool way of virtually inviting them. I guess so. But doesn't this raise all kinds of rights issues? And, um, you know, broadcast rights are a serious thing. And and there, you know, there are different kinds of forums, and some of them you don't really want, you know, have them window onto the entire world. No one's worried about this. Well, if it disappears after 24 hours, then, you know, that takes care of a lot of the rights issues right there. Yeah, although there's plenty of private stuff that you might not want people to see. As I was tapping around Periscope this morning, I stumbled on something that was just a very close-up of somebody's cow print bedspread that seemed to be, like, rhythmically moving in a manner that seemed to suggest that somebody's Periscope had been left on accidentally. Or maybe someone was just, like, laughing or, I don't know. No, Nothing untoward was seen, but... Things... Well, nudity is supposed to be banned, right? There's supposed to be no, you know, masturbation or nudity or any of that naughty business on Periscope. Yeah, untoward things were suggested. I mean, I think the thing that was striking to me about it was how selfie-based it seemed. I mean, I looked at, I probably looked at 15 to 20 different streams this morning, and only one of them was attempting to show me something other than a head talking to me. I mean, it really seems great as a form of fan interaction, for lack of a better word. And I think we just saw that in our little experiment. Some people who are fans of Dana got the notification that she was on Periscope. They came to see what she was up to, and they got to say hi and ask us questions and shower virtual hearts upon Steve and Dana. And it was a very direct way of talking to people who listen to our show in real time, right? I mean, or or who are fans of your writing in real time. And the most productive use of it that I saw this morning was someone called Renee Stubbs, who appeared by the fact that she was wearing a blue tennis t-shirt and had an Australian accent to be some kind of 
Australian tennis player turned commentator uh, and seemed to be watching early rounds of the French Open and just fielding questions from her fans about who does she think was the greatest male tennis player of all time? Does she think that Francesca Schiavone is looking in bad shape? Yes, she did. You know, what's it like to be a TV commentator? Has that been tricky for her? Why is tennis spectatorship in Sydney so poor? She has problems with the stadium location, thinks they need to build a new one. You know, I was basically eavesdropping on this conversation between this tennis pro and her fans. And it seemed like kind of a nice way for her to interact with people. I mean, the weirdest thing I saw this morning was probably a protracted grasping from a Toronto YouTube star called Matt Santoro, who just looked in the camera and just urging his followers to like him. I mean, he literally was just saying things like, tap, 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 tap at the screen, tap. Oh, that's so And oh, then he was so like, depressing. once we get to 14 million hearts, it was unclear whether that was per stream or lifetime achievement, he would do a dance and twerk. And so I checked in early on, and then I went and looked at a bunch of other streams for a while. And then I came back, and he had achieved 14 million hearts, and he was elated. And so he carried the phone to his bedroom, where he put on Lil Wayne's A. Millie and proceeded to dance, not very well, to A. Millie. And that was the reward for having watched him urge you to like him for the other 13,999,000 hearts. After the 14 millionth, then he danced, and it basically just kind of shook his booty at the camera and then dropped trow and shook his black and neon drawers at the camera. No express nudity. Wow, you went so I think you went deeper into the sort of scary (laughs) spiritual landscape of of Periscope than I did. I mean, one thing that I kind of enjoyed about skipping around is that you see people from all over the world. I mean, there's there's something on some basic, again, mesmerizingly boring level, fascinating about watching people pop up in different languages, saying things you don't understand, doing things that you don't understand. I saw a bunch of Turkish girls apparently trying to figure out how to use Periscope, (laughs) but at least I got to hear them do it in Turkish. And then some guy in Dubai, actually, he was looking out at the world, but in the most boring way. He had his his camera essentially mounted on his dashboard as he drove down some highway near Dubai and welcomed his his heart-sending followers. But it all seemed to be incredibly self-referential and, as you say, kind of contained within that person's either face or bedroom. Oh, you're reminding me of the two other outward-viewing periscopes I watched. One was just out out a train window in Italy. Always nice to look out a train window. And the other was a car wash. Somebody periscoped a car wash, which is great. I'd love to be in a car wash at any moment. And I never go to a car wash because I live in Manhattan. So, but the, I mean, I was transfixed by Periscope. I thought it was the most culturally fascinating medium we've looked at in years because I have never felt more like I was living in Gary Steingart's super sad true love story than on Periscope, which seems like a virtual hothouse for the exchange of human capital of just need and want and desire to be recognized and seen, devoid of any kind of content or other effort to explain what's going on in the world, devoid of anything else beyond just like, I can connect with you right now. But it is important, I guess, to point out that it's a medium in its infancy, right? I mean, Vine seemed very much that way to me when we explored Vine, sort of like the lack of sophisticated ability to edit or, you know, transform what you were seeing and producing made it seem very contentless to me. And of course, Vine is way more editable and producible than Periscope is, right? I mean, this is really just sort of a clip of whatever is happening in your your own live action moment 
right then. So I guess possibilities for it have yet to be explored. I mean, it is true that a lot of the people we're watching are just figuring out what it is, just like we are. Yes, and actually because Periscope just launched on Android this morning on on Tuesday when we're taping, there were a lot of people actually very helpfully welcoming Android users and explaining how to use Periscope. So I feel like I got many more welcome primers than you would probably get on an average Periscope jaunt. All right. Well, the technology is called Periscope. It's owned by Twitter. Is it the next big thing or onto the trash heap with um, what was the one that we the the live streaming like rando phone call one that we did? Oh, chat roulette. Chat roulette. Go sit in the corner with chat roulette. All right. uh, Anyway, let us know what you think of this technology. Facebook dot com slash culture fest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? This episode of the Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by the Netflix original documentary series Chef's Table, which offers viewers the opportunity to go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. This series is directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi, a film of which you are a big fan, Dana, correct? Oh, yeah, I love Jiro. I've never seen it. What's it like? It's just a portrait of an obsessive sushi chef. I mean, it's just it's one of those fascinating things where you go into the mind of someone whose whole life is about achieving absolute perfection in this one domain. Well, it seems like a good setup for this series about other chefs and their pursuits. What makes a chef? Is it signature dishes and kitchen experience, culinary training and personal heritage, or is it something else? Step behind the scenes for an up-close look at the amazing journeys of six culinary superstars from around the world, from Australia, Sweden, Argentina, the United States, Italy, chefs like Dan Barber and Massimo Bottura. Again, that's Chef's Table, a new documentary series from Netflix. All episodes streaming now. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. In a recent radio interview, the actor and screenwriter Simon Pegg called out the cultural predominance of what people often call nerd culture. Uh, As he himself said, now we're essentially all consuming very childish things, comic books, superheroes, and he went on to describe all this as a kind of dumbing down. These were his words. This probably surprised fans of Simon Pegg, whose name has been made partially by appearing as Scotty in J.J. Abrams' rebooted Star Trek films and as Benji in the Mission Impossible sequels. Uh, He's the star of the cult. British genre flick Shaun of the Dead. He himself appears to be deeply embedded within this nerd culture that he called out. And quite unsurprisingly, however, he clarified his remarks. Another way of putting that is he walked them back pretty far. Nonetheless, we're joined by Jamel Bowie, Slate contributor. Jamel, welcome to the show. Hello. Nonetheless, one of the things I found interesting about his clarification was it was not a full walk back. Instead, he kind of adumbrated it. He made it more subtle, more interesting, but he kind of held pretty firm that in some ways the original Star Wars from 1977 was a turning point in film culture before which Hollywood made at least some morally disturbing complex films for a mass audience after which they did so decreasingly. What do you make of all this argument? I assume we're having you on the show because you're a fan of nerd culture and can explain it to us. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I think that's why you're having me on the show. Yes, and, um, this segment I, could also be titled Jamel Defends Nerd Culture. I or mean, not. I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to defend nerd culture here because I don't think Peg should have walked back his initial remarks. Um, I think there is a real extent to which mainstream nerd culture is kind of infantilizing, is this sort of obsessive connection to nostalgia that often makes it difficult to try new things and to explore new things. You know, for as much as I am excited about a new Star Wars movie or the Star Trek trilogy that Simon Pegg is a part of, and I believe he's writing the next film in that trilogy, 
I also think, you know, why do we need another rehash? Um, why do we need uh, Han Solo and Chewbacca in another Star Wars movie? Why do we need another Star Wars movie? I'd like to think that nerd imaginations are much greater and much bigger to accommodate new things. Yeah, I'm sorry that Peg felt the need to respond to all these angry nerds who in their anger proved his point. <laughs> yeah, as as am I. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the first Star Wars coming out. I think I was in sixth or seventh grade. It was a total revelation. It was obviously a great film, but it was also naive in a way. It hadn't already begun to perceive its own characters as iconic. What they were was new, and over time they became these you know, gigantic presences in, in the collective imagination. Peg's point is that appears to be, you know, large franchise nerd culture based films are preventing us from seeing more movies like MASH or Coming Home or the complex auteur driven movies of the 70s. Isn't the real argument that it's presenting new us from seeing Star Wars like it's it's preventing us from seeing new iconic images created and appearing fresh and over time taking taking over our imaginative horizon. I think that's right. And it's funny because sort of during this I guess the past 10 years or so there have been new there's been new art, new nerd culture that I I think makes a legit claim to being Star Wars like um you know at the top of my mind is the Nickelodeon series Avatar the Last Airbender which is fresh and inventive and exciting and fun in the same way that Star Wars was and was popular for a time, but sort of never, it's more like kind of a cult nerd thing at this point than, you know, than a, a massive mainstream thing. And I find that very disappointing. I, I think it had all the potential to be um, something that could captivate a lot of imaginations. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's tricky about Simon Pegg's manifesto is that he's lumping level of sophistication together with genre. And I think that it's certainly fair to say that a lot of comic book movies are not among the most sophisticated movies that have ever been produced in American cinemas. Like Thor was not the deer hunter. That's fine. Stipulated. But I resist that kind of broad brush argument. And I think, you know, it's fair to argue that American movie making generally right now is too dependent on previous franchises, too dependent on recycling stuff that they are convinced will get people into the theaters. But I'm not sure that it's fair to say that it's impossible to make a, a great and sophisticated and subtle movie that's based off of a comic book story. And I think the kind of archetypes and struggles that appear in comic books seem like they could be ripe for dumbness and for sophistication, depending on who's doing the interpreting. You know, so I think Hollywood has a dumb movie problem and Hollywood has a comic book movie obsession. And I think those two things are aligned, but not necessarily the same. Yeah, Julia, in, in relation to this this division that you're making and that I think Simon Pegg could have made more clearly between mass-produced, mass-marketed, Marvel-style nerd culture and something that's a more kind of underground, bubbling up from below, more interesting nerd culture, it's worth mentioning that the director that Simon Pegg is most closely associated with is Edgar Wright, who he starred not only in Shaun of the Dead for, but the entire so-called Cornetto trilogy of great, great genre parodies, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz with the second one, which is sort of a cop mystery parody, and most recently 
recently, World's End, which was, I guess you'd call it a, a I don't know, a, a zombie party monster movie. We talked about it here <laughs> on the show. I love all three of those movies, and I think they're all part of the sort of, I don't know, you might call it like the next generation, right? The 2.0 nerd culture of guys who grew up with comic books and Star Wars and Star Trek and all of these movies, but who are doing these really interesting and funny mashups with it all. Mashup is not even the word. They're sort of, you know, making making genre parodies that are very smart and unusual. And as followers of nerd culture will know, Edgar Wright was recently kicked off of directing Ant-Man, the big new upcoming Marvel movie with Paul Rudd, and replaced by another director. And that was, you know, supposedly because of creative differences behind the scenes. So I think Simon Pegg is also speaking from inside this tension between people that are trying to create and make something interesting and make something original and the massive forces of capitalism that are pressing down yeah. to, to make a global product. Yeah, I, Dana, I think that, that that's exactly right, that there are two very important things about this criticism. The first is that it's not from some garret-dwelling, you know, sour grape-pressing jerk like me. It's from someone who's actually within the system and profiting from it and finds it uh, exploitative and, and repetitive. And I think the second thing is that he put it in a really interesting context. He actually has a theory for this you know, state of affairs, which is that his generation and people roughly his age grew up in an era where two things were really different. One is that you self-identified through culture in a way that was uh, way more pervasive and overwhelming in terms of your own identity, that this was the way you sort of forged your sense of self, was as mediated by these icons of nerd culture. And the second was that adolescence really never came to quite an abrupt or official end as it used to when you simply went off into the occupational hierarchy and discovered your identity. You know, you shed the sort of quote-unquote false identity of your adolescence and became a locked door, you know, a, a doctor, a lawyer, a garbage man, a poet, um, a dog dentist, whatever you became. Um, and that since people no longer have that relationship quite to the workforce, people extend this adolescence kind of into infinity at this point, And therefore, you can market what would have been movies you know, really aimed at nine-year-old boys or 16-year-old boys to people of all ages. And that this is, I mean, he's very emphatic about this, that this is kind of morally infantilizing and it prevents people from looking at their wor own world as a as a morally complex, you know, uh, socially negotiated reality. Um, Jamel, what do you make of that? I think that is true. And I think sort of the best example of it, um, and this is obviously it's a very negative example, but I think it's, it's kind of encapsulates the phenomenon he's talking about, is the, the Gamergate controversy that is, I guess, ongoing, but kind of reached its apex. What was interesting about it for me was just this tight uh, self-definition um, with a product. And I think, I think Peg is sort of speaking to that. Um, and I, I think he's right to say that for whatever reason, um, you know, the rise of the post-industrial service economy, kind of the, the rise of income inequality or, or kind of drastic income inequality, whatever you want to identify it as, people are taking consumer products and kind of linking them uh, incredibly tightly to their identity as humans. And in the case of, I, I, I feel like I see things, similar things in the case of comic books and, and, and movies and kind of, you know, general nerd culture, just a intense identification with these commercial products, which I think are important. Um, you know, I spent a good chunk of this weekend reading comic books. I'm not going to disparage that, but which I'm not sure should be the basis for identity formation. Mm. All right. Well, um, this is a great segment. Jamel, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just always a highlight. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
I'm going to endorse a book recommended to me by June Thomas, whose pronunciation <laughs> of that word has actually earned her the nickname Books in my house. Like <laughs> when we had Thanksgiving last year, my daughter asked, is Books coming? <laughs> And um, and so June Books Thomas is a wonderful recommender of books, and uh, she, knowing that I and my family will be going to Tokyo this summer, which I'm sure I'll be talking about more on the Gabfest as that exciting trip approaches, recommended some books about Japan, which is a place she's been to with her partner several times, and they're really interested in Japan and Japanese history. So I said, what should I read before I go to Japan? And one of the books she recommended, which I just started and which is great, is The Japan Journals by Donald Ritchie, who is this writer and critic who's mainly known for um, helping to introduce Japanese film into the West. He sort of helped to discover, at least for non-Japanese audiences, Ozu and Mizuguchi and these great classic Japanese filmmakers. And Donald Ritchie died in 2013, but for most of his life, most of his adult life, he lived in Tokyo as an expatriate, and uh, and these are his journals from the years 1947, right after the war, so some really fascinating images and word portraits of post-war Japan all the way up until 2004. And like I say, I just started, but for the moment, it's just it's this wonderful world that I'm reading about that is all these expatriate gay men in the military in post-war Japan sort of creating their own dream world. They're all really interested in, in Japanese art and culture, but don't necessarily know the language or understand the culture that well. And uh, and so it's sort of about this, you know, romance with a completely foreign world, which I think soon will be turning into the story of discovering those films and starting to bring them to the West. So the Japan Journals by Donald Ritchie, highly recommended so far. That sounds fascinating. Uh, Julia, what do you got? I'm going to recommend a terrific book for children called Rude Cakes. It is one of the most interesting things to me about parenthood and being a quasi-culture critic type that you have to read so much stuff. And whether it is good is not determinative of whether it is the selection of your children. And finding the, the rare books that you think are good and your children think are good and thus you can bear to read them 25 times in a row is is a rare thing. My kids are currently obsessed with a book called The Ultimate Book of Vehicles, which goes in our house by Ultimate Book <laughs> 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 and is repeatedly requested and has lots of flaps and you learn a lot about fishing boats that actually is kind of interesting. But a book that I'm much happier when it is selected is Rude Cakes, which is the story of a very rude cake, a young cake who likes to steal toys and not listen to his parents and is generally a brat, who then has a terrifying and then illuminating encounter with some giant cyclopses. The book I should disclose is by Robo Watkins. That's the nom de plume of this children's book author and illustrator who regular fans of the show uh, may have a clue to the true identity of. But even if this book were not by Robo Watkins and not by a pal, I would have been so delighted to have it arrive in my children's book box. Because it has amazing drawings, the, the cake and cyclopses and all the other elements of the world are beautifully rendered in, in gorgeous colors. Because it has a surreal story and a manner that is surprising and delightful on every page, but yet seems totally sensible and follows all kinds of storytelling logic, unlike Wayward Pines. <laughs> Fruit cakes. It's not like Wayward Pines. That's my blurb. And it also does a thing that's a really hard needle for children's books to thread, which is that in some ways it is a teaching book. In some ways it has a didactic purpose it's fundamentally a book about manners. It's about being rude and why it's not nice to be rude. And yet it is not treacly or strident or like gross in the way that books like that seem gross. They often seem so transparent about their motives that you're a little bit like eye roll, even if you are the parent who would 
benefit from the lessons being imparted. But the surrealism of the book and the gorgeousness of the colors make the story more important than the lesson uh, and make it all that much more fun. I also like it because after reading it many times, it taught my children the word giant cyclopses. And now from time to time, they'll just be like, giant cyclops, which is a startling and fun thing to hear a two-year-old say. So, Rude Cakes by Robot Watkins. As a big fan of Rude Cakes and Robot Watkins, I endorse that endorsement. <laughs> all right. Well, it looks like books all around. Um, I uh, finally, a little bit late, started planting out my garden this past weekend. And... Um, for the first time, I'm trying to do it in a slightly more organized way. It used to be just, I mean, the be- one beautiful thing about gardening is that you can be a total dunce about it and you can just throw a bunch of seeds and a bunch of dirt and something will grow. I mean, it really is kind of miraculous and you'll get poison of some sort or another come August. But if you do it slightly more cogently, you, you will only get more poison. Is no, is no one going to call me on the use of the word poison? I'm just sitting here trying to even picture how it's spelled. I think I know how it's spelled because one night in college, this is a, a, a great example of what my college career was like. My friend and I stayed up till like four in the morning looking up weird F words in the dictionary, including <laughs> flinzer, flinders and poison and... Um, Ah, Fufara. There were so many good ones. <laughs> so I remember encountering poison then, and I'm not startled that it is a word, but I confess that I do not remember exactly what it means. Something to do with harvesting, right? I mean, oh, it's like a rich, especially rich harvest. What I want is for someone on Periscope to snarkily tell me that it's pronounced foison. It probably comes straight from a French word foison, right? Maybe it's like French for pheasant. It's the plump pheasant that arrived. I'm sure that's not the French word for pheasant. Anyway, if you want plump pheasants dripping from your tomato plants come August, um, one thing you can do is you can companion plant, which is this sort of, I mean, imagined kind of accumulation of ancient wisdom about which plants sort of reciprocally benefit other plants. So, for example, carrots and tomatoes go very well together. I mean, sometimes it's a simple question of shade that a tomato plant provide you know gets bushy and as it gets bushy it shades the carrots which want only so much sun it's others it's kind of complementary nutrients what what gets leached and um into and out of the soil by the plant is can be complementary well it turns out if you do a little googling you discover from veteran gardeners that there's a classic called a classic book called carrots love tomatoes by a woman named louise riott r-i-o-t-t-e we'll put it on our webpage. and it was it's a supposedly a classic of of um you know vegetable gardening from 1975 that really laid out all of what vegetables love to be next to what other vegetables to attract you know healthy insects that get rid of the pesty insects and uh, on and on soil nutrients and shade and all of that and i I have to admit, I've only cadged little pieces of it from the internet, but it does seem amazing, and I've ordered it on Amazon. So I suppose that my endorsement is companion planting for gardening, but also what looks like a wonderful book that's on route to me now called Carrots Love Tomatoes by Louise Riott, plus the wonderful word foison. All right, guys. uh, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Julia, thanks. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. 
For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Sam Zabel, host of Adulthood Made Easy, and the next couple months will be a guide to grads dedicated to the class of 2015. We'll be talking about all of the things you're worried about right now, how to stay in touch with college friends, what a nine to five job looks like, and how to explore and get comfortable in a new city. You can subscribe to Adulthood Made Easy and the rest of the Real Simple podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply.